We're not going to talk about a saint. Let's pray and we're going to dive in. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and never shall be, world without end. Amen. In the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I want to thank John for covering for me last week. So we're in a point of sacraments. So the four pillars of the catechism, right? And there's that logic. Do you remember what the four pillars are? You make me feel like a great teacher when you, like, never heard of it. There's the four pillars, the four main sections of the catechism, and what that is, right? That's, what we're, that's the general kind of route we're taking as we dive into the church and the church's faith. So, yep, creed is first. That's third. Oh, no, I'm sorry, that is second. Yep, sacraments. Morality. And prayer, we're just going to ignore. Hopefully not. Hopefully we'll get to prayer. Okay. There's a logic to that, right? What the world tells us is that what Christianity is about is three. Right? It's not, it's, there's a reason that morality is third. Now, I know lots of you have lots of questions about how he teaches on morality. We'll get to that. But morality is not primary in Christianity. It's not even secondary. It's tertiary. Right? Christianity is not about you getting your act together and then you can be a Christian. That's not Christianity. It never was. It never will be. A lot of us grew up with that kind of understanding, though, because you hear people and they really, really emphasize this pillar. It's a good pillar. We'll get there. So we're here, and really quickly, the logic of this is that Christianity, the creed, what the creed's about is what God has done in history. So Christianity doesn't start with you. It starts with God. It's what he has done, right, and how he loved us and redeemed us. The sacraments are what put you on the playing field. This isn't just something that happened 2,000 years ago, but Catholics believe in a church. Christ is alive today. The main way that he's alive today, there's other ways, but the main way is through his sacraments. Sacraments do is they make a past event present today. That's what a sacrament does. Okay, let's pause there really quick. Question. What a sacrament is, because that was a very brief definition, and you probably have questions about it. Yeah. I heard that marriage is a sacrament. So how does that good. From the past? Yeah. So, good question. So the question was, I hear that marriage is a sacrament. So how does that tie to something from the past? Is because I have, I wanted to come up with something really funny in the name, but work can't think of anything. Because in the past. Yeah, and so that's right. All, all seven sacraments, and we should just list those. Seven sacraments, can we do this? So let's go in order. What's the first sacrament of Catholicism? Okay, I'm just going to put the first letter because it'll take me further, forever otherwise. Baptism. Second. 
Everyone thinks it's confirmation, but that's wrong. Oh, no, I'm sorry. That's, I, I just screwed that up. I am a priest, I promise. You were right. Confirmation's the second. Wow, I'm, I'm terrible. Please don't judge me. Too many weeks off. Third, not reconciliation, Eucharist. So confirmation second, and we'll maybe put conf right there. Eucharist is third. Now these, they are, when the church teaches about sacraments, these three, they, the church puts these three in one category. And that category is called the sacrament. These are the sacraments that make you part of the family. They're initiatory. But, and we'll come back. I hope maybe. We'll see. You know how I work. Okay, what's after, what is after Eucharist? What? what? Yep, reconciliation or confession. And after, those ones are the ones that have real orders. After that, the order isn't as important. There's another sacrament that goes with reconciliation. And I'm just going to tell you because this is a little hard. The other one that goes with it is anointing of the sick. So those two, the church puts in one category. And the category for those two sacraments is Sacraments of healing. We're not going to go too deep into those right now. You guys are not allowed to sit over there. Yeah, deal with it. Come sit with us. Um, it's just, I'm just going to be, I feel like you're not, like, engaged. Okay. Confirmation, Eucharist, Christian initiation. Reconciliation, and we're going to talk about all these, some more in depth than others, are sacrament healing. And then the last category, so there's, that's five, so that means we've got, uh, how many left? Two left, what are the last two? Marriage and? Marriage and holy orders. And those two go together, and the church puts those in the same category, and they say, these two sacraments are sacraments at the service of communion. Now, most of my engaged couples don't think this, but my married couples know this, is that when the, when the catechism treats of marriage, like when you get engaged, and you come to my office, and you're like, oh, Father Brian, you just get each other in my office, and you're just like, <laughs> no, but you think, what, it, what it, you think marriage is about, what's going on, no batteries are dead? Uh, so what it is, is that when you first get married, and this is really good, it's really beautiful, it, it's all about the two of you, and that's really good, but what you find out as you um, enter into marriage more deeply and the years go by, is that what marriage, marriage is about, it's a, it becomes primarily about your children. And we'll talk about this as time passes when we talk about marriage. But what the church says about both of these is that those sacraments are not about you. 
There's sacraments whereby you life down for someone else. And we'll talk about that. It's, it's so beautiful. It's so powerful. The rest, so all seven sacraments, all of these groups, what all seven of them do is they insert us into the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. All seven. So the point of the sacraments is that, you know, God did all of these things in history. He created the world. He freed the Jews from slavery in Egypt, right? He created the Davidic kingdom. He did all these things. And you say, wow, that's really cool. I wish I lived in that time. And what Catholics have believed from the very foundation of Christianity is that Jesus didn't just do something in the past and then you believe it and wow, now I get to go to heaven, is that through the sacraments, you are put on the playing field. The Christ actually wants to live in you right here and right now and the church is very much alive and Christ very much lives right here and right now in his seven sacraments. Now, one more thing I want to hit on generally, and then we'll, we'll jump into more specifics about, hopefully we'll talk about Eucharist tonight, is that <clears throat> you ever wondered, and we talked about this earlier in class at the very beginning, I think. We did. Can anybody remember why are there seven sacraments? Okay, good. Seven deadly sins, but no, wrong. But good. This is why no answers in class. I used to, did I tell you guys, I used to say, I had Bible study high school guys, and I never wanted to be that, like, kind of just abrasive and straight with them. And so they would say, an answer, like, wholly wrong, and I would always say, well, you know, there's, there's some. And they, they picked it quickly that when I said there's some truth to that, it meant that's a terrible answer. I'm not going to, it wasn't terrible. Okay, but that's not why. Why are there seven? Okay, good. Could you anything more about that? The Jewish word for oath. Okay, good. So the Jewish word seven in the Bible, it, it kind of has two meanings. Seven is the number of perfection, right? There's seven days of creation. Seven in general means perfection in the Bible. But the word for seven in Hebrew is sheva. If, I don't want to go too deeply into this because we'll never get to where I want to go tonight. But if you want a good story about in Genesis 21, Abraham makes a covenant with a man named Abimelech, which will be the name of the next son. Great name, Abimelech. And what happens is they, they swear this oath together and they make a covenant. A covenant is made up of oaths. When you get married, a marriage is a covenant. A covenant is like a contract, but greater. A contract is I pay you however much money and you, you know, uh, you pay my house. That's a contract. A covenant is like a contract, but it's greater. A, co a covenant is what makes a family. A covenant is you are mine and I am yours. That's what a covenant is. A covenant is what makes a family. And so marriage is a covenant. 
So a covenant, the key part of a covenant is an oath. The day you get married, the central part of your covenant is the oath you will make to your spouse. Right? What's an oath? An oath is a promise before God. And so the day you get married, you will say, you know, I'll just pick on Mary because she's married. The day Mary got married, she said to her husband, I am married, take you, Greg, to be my husband. I promise to be faithful to you times and in bad and sickness and in health, to love you and honor you all the days of my life. And she made that promise before God to her husband. That's an oath. And it makes a covenant. Okay, so why does that matter? The word in Hebrew for oath is sheva. But it also means seven. Same word. Sheva means oath or seven. And in the Hebrew mind, they're the same thing. And so this is a lot, but if you read Genesis 21, go check that out this week. It's unclear, and if, and if you look at the footnotes there, they, the Abraham and Abimelech, they talk about a well there, and the well is called Beersheba. And B's and V's in Hebrew are interchangeable. Bear, like beer, in Hebrew, I don't know if this is where we get the word beer. I've never thought of that before. But that word in Hebrew means well. And then Sheva is oath or seven. And they sacrifice seven lambs there. I think it's you lambs. And it's unclear. And if you look at the footnotes, the translation, there, there'll be a translation because Genesis 21 tells you, Be'er Sheva means the well of the oath. But if you look at your footnote, it'll say, or the well of seven. Okay, here's my point. Why are there seven sacraments? Seven means covenant. It means that God or two people make a covenant with each other. I am yours and you are mine. The Jews understand that that's why there's seven days of creation. Is that God is, it's not just about this is how long it took. It actually means, right, that God loved the world. And it wasn't a neutral space that meant nothing. It was a space that God loved and wanted to be in relationship with. All of creation. So sacraments, the church, Ephesians chapter 5, we believe as Christians because God teaches this, and there's, there's 10 passages in the New Testament about this at least. But the easiest is Ephesians chapter 5. And in Ephesians 5, St. Paul says that the bride of Christ, the church, well, actually, that's what I meant to say, that the church is the bride of God, the bride of Christ. And the reason there are seven sacraments is because God made a covenant with his church. And the way that he gives himself to us, right? The, if you're a church person, the way you kind of swear to make a covenant is you say, I seven myself. I make an oath. I, I, I make a seven of myself to you. 
And so the reason there are seven sacraments is because that's Jesus gives himself completely to his bride in a sevenfold way, in an oath. By the way, the only churches that can claim to go back to the time of Christ are the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church. And both of them, dogmatically in the highest form of their teaching, both of them say there always have been and always will be seven sacraments. Okay, let's pause. I meant to spend like 30 seconds on that. Might have gone a little longer. Questions, thoughts, pushback. All seven sacraments, what they do is they insert us. Everyone, okay, so Jesus died for me. He rose from the dead. He gave his life away. But, how, like, but I'm just a dude who goes to church in 21st century Denver. And like, how does this, I guess I'm supposed to live a good life and I'm supposed to go to church and I'm supposed to believe this. But again, the point of the sacraments is that this is not just something that happened in the past. So one of my favorite passages is Galatians 2.20. And there's, and Paul, if you want a list of these, I can get you one. Paul uses language like this all over the New Testament, again and again and again. But in Galatians 2.20, St. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ... And listen to this, I have been crucified with Christ. And he says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Listen to that one more time. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's what it means to be a Christian. Right? The, the normal way we approach this as modern men and women is that Christianity is, a, is a, a set of teachings and you can check the boxes and you say, okay, Jesus, God, I wrestle with it, but check. Trinity, I have no idea what that even means, but okay, check, right? Um, and you, you just go down the list, and it's hard to figure out, and you say, okay, it's a set of teachings and a morality, right? Okay, so, so I believe this, 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 and this, and so therefore, I'm going to stop sleeping with my girlfriend, and I'm going to try to smoke less weed, Right? Which you should, you should do. You should try to smoke less weed. You know what's funny? We make a lot of weed jokes at Lourdes. <laughs> at least I do. In our office. We have like more in our like area, I think, than probably any Catholic church in the world. Except maybe in Amsterdam. Okay. Anyway, I don't smoke weed, by the way. I know you're going to go home and be like, does Father Brian smoke weed? I have never once in my life. And I really mean that. Okay. But here's my point, right? Is that what most of us think Christianity is about is number one and number three. And, when, and you miss the whole point. If you think that, you miss the whole point. And whenever saints talk about why they're Christians, 
Whenever you hear saints, whenever you encounter a Mother Teresa or a St. John Paul II, and when people met St. John Paul II, and when they met Mother Teresa, you know what they say? When I met Mother Teresa in Calcutta, it's like I met Jesus. They all say that. They all say that. And you know why I say that? Because the sacraments mean that Jesus wants to live inside of you. It's not just he wants if something happened, and to get your moral life together. The sacraments mean that Jesus Christ lives inside of me. And that's Christianity, and that's what the sacraments are. Okay, I'm done with the general treatment of the sacraments, unless you have questions, and then we're going to move to Eucharist. Questions? Yeah. Um, good. I didn't hear last week either, so I don't know if it was answered. But good question. Was it answered? Did you, John, did you answer this last week? Did you answer last week about why confirmation is second and not third? Okay. Here's why. So <clears throat> really quickly, this just, some of you don't, this is a new thing for you. Some of you were, this is a big, kind of a big thing right now. So this order for a lot of you seems weird. For a lot of Catholics, it seems like the order should be baptism, Eucharist, and then confirmation. And that's how most Catholics living today have received their sacraments. So I got my baptism when I was, you know, two months old. And I, was, um, I got my first communion when I was seven, so Eucharist. And then I was confirmed when I was 13. And that's how most, like, okay, so Catholics in the room, how many of you that was the order? See, so look, it's, it's almost everybody. Why is it not that way? Here's really quickly, I'll try really quick. Baptism always went first. This actually was this is the ancient order. And for 19 centuries of Christianity, it went baptism, confirmation, Eucharist. Why? Because the Eucharist is the high point. The Eucharist is everything. And we're going to talk about that tonight. If tonight, what I'm going to start on, we're going to, it's going to bleed into next week. We're going to do at least two classes on Eucharist. The Eucharist is the center of Catholicism. It is the high point. It is the meaning of everything. Everything we do in the, in the Catholic Church is about communion. And we'll get to that in a second. And so confirmation was always understood. What confirmation means is a Latin word. It means to strengthen. And what it strengthens is your baptism. And all through Christianity, it always went baptism, confirmation, Eucharist. But what happened was in, in the Catholic Church, very early on, we decided that only bishops could do confirmations. And so what happened was it got really hard for bishops to get to all the confirmations. Priests could do baptisms and even deacons and We'll get to all that, maybe. But only bishops could do confirmation. What happened is the church exploded. Bishops said, I can't make it for every... It's going to take me a while to get there. I can't be doing confirmations for each kid. So what happened was the age started to get older, and we did it all together. So the age over the years for confirmation crept up and up and up and up and up and up until it hit about you know, 10, 12, 13, 14 and then what happened was, and most of us just don't know this, is that right about 1900, 
there is a pope, a great saint, um, St. Pius X, who wanted people to go to communion more. He wanted them to understand that God loves you, and he wants you to understand that you're supposed to receive him in the Eucharist. And so he lowered the age of First Communion. And he didn't mean to do this. He just wanted people more frequently. But by doing that, a side effect was that he lowered the age of First Communion. And by doing that, he changed the order of the sacraments. And so right now, that's being fixed. So what's happening right now is the church is saying, that order really matters because people get the idea that confirmation is your adult decision to be a Catholic. No, it's not. You were probably taught that in your confirmation class as a kid. I was. One line on that, and then I'm done, and we're going to switch gears. We'll take a break and switch gears. Um, a lot of people are like, they, like parents. So a lot of you are young people. When you have kids, please, please, please don't tell your kids the confirmation is their adult decision to become Catholic, right? Like, this is about as most important thing ever that you can ever decide in your life. What important decision do you give to a 13-year-old, right? Like, when your 13-year-old comes to you and they're like, Mom, I've decided I want to move to New York and um, pursue, like, my acting career and to experiment with drugs. And you're like... I guess you're an adult. Yeah, I'd love to argue against that, but you're, you're a grown adult now, so I have to let you go. Are you out of your damn mind? No. No one would ever say that, right? This, when you're 13, it's impossible to make an adult decision to be a Catholic. When you're 13, you hate going to church. Priests are the most boring people on earth, and you want to do all the things Christianity tells you not to do. You're like, but I'm 13. I think I can really understand this and make an adult decision. The hell you can. It was never that. It was never meant to be that ever, ever, ever. Okay. Five-minute break, and we're going to talk about Eucharist. Okay. Okay, folks, we ready to start back up? One encouragement, I hope again, I hope throughout the, this year that you're still meeting new people. One of, the, one of the best ways to stay a Christian is to actually meet people. If you, if you try to be a Christian by yourself, it's really, really hard. But it's, it's way easier when you have community. And I really hope... Wait, say that again? The event on Monday. Thanks for coming. All of you who didn't come Monday night, I judged you in my heart. No, just kidding. I spoke, well, yeah, today's Wednesday, Monday night at a bar, which I do regularly. No. Okay, before we jump to Eucharist, I just want to make sure, so I know John's here. We're going to test John O'Brien, how well he did. Okay, dear RCIA people, why does the Catholic Church teach that baptism is necessary for salvation? You can answer. Okay. Okay, wash away sins. Why else? Say that again. Spirit, yep. Okay, you have an indelible mark on your soul. That's all here. Steve? Yes, that is, that is true. 
new creation, right? The beginning of the Genesis story, the spirit of God hovers on the waters. There is a new creation, new identity, right? Jesus' baptism, the father speaks, the spirit falls, and it says, this is my beloved son. You're welcome to the family. So here's, here's the read my mind I'm trying to get you to. So <clears throat> baptism is really hard because it's about as rich as, as anything in Catholic theology. Other than the Eucharist, the ba- baptism is probably the, the richest thing we could talk about. <clears throat> but here's the key verse, and I should have put it on your sheet for tonight, but I didn't, is Romans And it's really the whole first part of that chapter, but it begins really in verse 3. So listen to this. So, so this is a good segue into, and from going from why all, every sacrament, every single one was instituted by Jesus himself. Catholics believe that. So it wasn't that like 200 years later, Pope Gelasius I says, you know what? I think we should have this thing called a confirmation to torture 12-year-olds. Like, let's do it, right? <clears throat> All seven sacraments are instituted by Jesus himself. Um, <clears throat> but Romans 6, 3 and following, and there's there probably about 10 really solid, very clear passages about this in the New Testament. But here's what Romans 6, 3 says. It says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Do you hear that? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. First Peter tells us that baptism saves us. He actually says that baptism saves us. In Mark chapter 16, Jesus says this weird thing. He says, everyone who believes and is baptized will be saved. In Acts of the Apostles, whenever anyone converts, every single time in Acts of the Apostles, when they convert to Christianity, the first thing they do is they get baptized. And there's one scene in Acts where there's a crowd of people where the Holy Spirit actually falls on them, but they haven't been baptized and Peter finds them. And it's amazing. The Holy Spirit's poured out on them. But that's not enough. Peter, Peter commands them to be baptized immediately. And here's why. What I tell people is like, the natural, normal thing for us to think as modern men and women is, hey, I'm not a bad guy. Haven't killed anybody. Kind of an aggressive driver. You know, I may have smoked pot a couple times. What's the big deal, right? Has anybody ever thought that? Three of us, thank you. The rest of you are what I call liars, right? 
Doesn't everybody think that? Everyone thinks, hey, I'm good. I'm a nice person. I haven't killed anybody. I'm not Hitler. I'm going to heaven, right? Christianity has never taught that. Christianity teaches we're all in trouble. And what Christianity teaches is only one person goes to heaven. There's only one person that goes to heaven who rises from the dead, who conquers sin and death. His name is Jesus. And if you're not in him, you do not have the power of rising from the dead and entering eternal life. And so what, what baptism is about, and it's so weird, right? It seems like the, when Catholics teach that baptism is necessary for salvation, that's so weird. Shouldn't it be like being nice or like obeying traffic laws, which I don't. Thank you, Lord, that that's not it. But the reason that we teach that is because of this. What the New Testament teaches in, in Romans chapter 6, in Colossians chapter 2, right? Jesus teaches it's necessary uh, in Mark 16, in Matthew 28. And I could go on forever. This is how we never get through enough in RCIA because I'm like, I just want to give you guys everything. <clears throat> All the sacraments put you here. And the biggest obstacle I find to the Christian faith in the modern world is not really intellectual disagreement. It's not like, oh, you know, I know science says that a, that a newly conceived child has a unique DNA and they have a heartbeat after 18 days, but I just think you're wrong. The biggest problem why people don't become Christians is because they don't think they need God. Yeah, I don't, I, you know, and they're like, I'm fine. My life is fine. And, and the New Testament says this. There is no room for Christ. And the Catholic dogma that baptism is necessary for salvation, all it means is that you are not okay without Jesus. I don't care how awesome you are, how many people you've helped. Right? Every one of us is broken. Try being a priest, right? I'm like, most days I finish the day and I try pretty hard and I'm like, Lord, you deserve, and I really mean this, I say to God every day, I'm like, you deserve better priests. And if you, okay, I'm going to stop preaching. Okay, I know there's questions about that. So quick questions and we'll see if we get to you, Chris, tonight or not. Questions about baptism being necessary for salvation. Yeah. If that's why baptism is necessary for salvation, wouldn't that mean that uh, acknowledging your need for God is more important than actually being baptized? Great. Make sure I articulate this right so they can hear. So wouldn't that mean that acknowledging your need for God is more important than baptism? So the act of faith should be kind of what saves you. Belief, re yeah, why are not belief or repentance as important as baptism? So the church sees faith and baptism as hand, going hand in hand. And we actually believe that the moment you're baptized, God gives you the gift of faith. They actually go hand in hand. Now, a person can come to faith naturally, 
But I think that's why in Acts, when that group has this conversion and the Holy Spirit actually falls on them, Peter commands them to be baptized. But here's the deeper point. The deeper point I can't reach God. Right? Like, I think it's important for all of us to try. And I think actually that's a huge part of what it means to be a human being. Is that in all of our lives we say, what is the meaning of life? Is there truth? What does it mean that human being, what does it mean that I'm going to die? And all those questions are bound up with the search for God. And God made us that way. But the, the dogma of baptism is about, I am a creature and my search for God doesn't get me there. Even my repentance, even my faith. But the, the, the mechanism that Christ gave us, and we will say, Catholics will believe that faith is necessary for salvation. But that the sacrament of baptism, because Christ says so in Mark 16 and other places, that that's, that's what he chooses as the mechanism for saving the world. And one last point, and then come back and tell me if I'm not answering it. But one last point. In Matthew 28, if you're coming from an evangelical background, you might know this passage. But Matthew 28, 18 through 20 is the Great Commission. And a lot of evangelical Christians memorize this. Last Jesus ever says on earth, he turns to 12 apostles, Judas is out of the picture, and he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. That's Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Check it out. It's pretty cool. But here's, but here's the point. The last thing Jesus ever says is go out and, and bring everyone into the faith and baptize every nation. Right? That, that, those are important words. Why would he say that? If it's just a symbol, why would he say that? Okay. Did that approximate? Okay. Yeah. Neat. With that comment, and how many denominations of Christianity have evolved? What's to say who can baptize who and who is yeah. doing it correctly? Or, I mean, yeah. a lot of different churches baptize all the time. So, so what, what, what baptisms work, which ones don't? The church, and this is where we do think, like, right, like the Bible doesn't answer every single question, right? It doesn't answer questions about modern science and about even like this question. And that's why God gave authority to a church, one of the reasons he did. But what the, the Catholic Church has decided on this issue is that because it's so necessary, that baptism has a wide acceptance. So we believe as Catholics that any Christian who baptizes another Christian with water and uses the Trinitarian formula, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Anyone who does that, that's a valid baptism. Yes, but don't or I'll find out. And I, no. <clears throat> yeah, you shouldn't do it unless it's an ex extreme case. Yeah, Ben.
Well, so the word there is um, goyim. Well, that's the Hebrew. The, um, what is the Greek word? Um, Gentiles. Um, it would be ethne, ethnoi in Greek. And all that means is peoples. So, so it's, it, it, it just means everyone. It's, an, it's a functional equivalency. No, because we got to get on to the next thing. Yes, Katie. I think I'm going to answer that with our next question. Water is a symbol of death. If I don't get to it, come back at me. Let me say one more thing because it's probably a question all of you have. What about people who aren't baptized? Is anybody wondering that? Yeah. Right question. And I love you three and the rest of you suck. Um, sorry. <laughs> I think that's kind of funny. Anyway, yeah, I know, I get that way. Um, here's the thing, the Catholic Church does not believe that all non-Catholics or all non-Christians are going to H-E double hockey. We don't, we do, there's a tension. We do believe you need Jesus. The only way you get to heaven is through the blood of Jesus Christ and through his death and resurrection. That's it. Now, I also, though, don't believe in an arbitrary God who sends people to hell who didn't know any better. I do not believe in that God. And the beautiful thing as a Catholic church is we believe there are different types of baptism. We have the baptism of water, which is what we've been talking about. Then there's the baptism of, um, the red baptism, the baptism of blood. If you died a martyr for the faith, but you weren't baptized, you would, you would be saved. That doesn't happen too often, right? <laughs> Father Brian. The third one, though, is what's called the baptism of desire. And this is, if you want scripture references for this, um, all one and two is generally about this kind of topic. And what it is, is it says, God wrote his law on every human heart. And so people who live good lives and who are searching for God, we can't say fully as Catholics if they're in heaven or not because I'm not God and I'm not going to pretend to be. But it makes sense. God is merciful. You might have a Buddhist, right, in Tibet who, for, because he was born in a Buddhist country, didn't become a Christian. But we don't believe in a God that says, oh, sorry, should have been born in France, you know. We believe in a God who says, if you live a good life, Christ is the truth. And you may never have known anything about him your whole life, but it's his blood that will save you. So we think it's the best possible scenario is for everyone to be Catholic, and I will spend the rest of my life fighting for that, because I think obviously. But that doesn't mean that God isn't free to work outside the church. Does that make sense? I love that. Some non-Catholic Christians, not all of them, but some of them will tell you if you're not an explicit Christian, you're in hell, period. The Catholic Church doesn't teach that. We don't believe that. Okay. Good by now, and it's your fault. Are you guys ready? Okay. Here's the key. This is my 
I don't know. I pray about everything, but you say it anyways. This is my favorite thing to teach about. I love this. This is so, so cool. Um, I will tell you right now, and I tell the class this every year until I. Um, if in the next, the rest of tonight, next time, possibly the class after that, we're going to be talking about. If it's at all possible, do not miss these classes. The Eucharist, if you understand the Eucharist, you will become Catholic, and no matter what happens, you'll never leave. This is the center of everything. Um, it's the reason I'm a priest. The reason I'm still a Catholic. The reason that the reason it is the reason that the recent scandals do not shake me. They're horrible. They're awful. If I was in any other church, I would have left because of the scandals. If you get the Eucharist, it will change your life. Um, and it will change the way you live as a Christian. It will change everything. Um, okay. So, dramatic intro. Here we go. So, so Old Testament and New Testament. The, old, the, the New Testament tells us that if you want to know what it means to live in the New Testament, the New Covenant, you can't understand it unless you understand the Old Testament. You can't. The only way to understand what it means to be a Christian is the Old Testament. And the probably the most important book for understanding what it means to be a Christian from the Old Testament is the book of Exodus. Okay, so here we go. We're going to set up the paradigm for this. So, in the Exodus... There's a story, in the Exodus story, there's a type of slavery. What was the slavery in the Old Testament? It's kind of obvious in the Exodus story. Yeah, thank you. I love how, I love how everybody whispers. It's like, you know, Pharaoh or something like that. You know? Yeah, right? They're in slavery in Egypt, right? Okay, in the New Testament, this is a little harder in the New Testament, there's this slavery. And this one's a little harder. What's the slavery in the New Testament? Good job, yeah. So Jesus tells us, let me find it really quick, because I've been wrestling this one. Um, so Paul in Romans 6.16 says, do you not know that if you yield yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Right? Think about that. If you give in to sin enough, it will make you a slave. If you are someone who goes with anger, if you always say yes to your anger, if you obey your anger, you will become a slave to your anger. If you give in to your lust enough, 
You say yes to lust, your lust will make you a slave. If you give in to your vanity enough, and you, you say yes to your vanity enough, your vanity will make you a slave. Right? John 8, Jesus says this. John 8, 34. Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. So the New Testament teaches us that, slave, that sin makes us slaves. I have experienced that in my life. Okay. So you have, a, you have a slavery. You have a big bad guy. Who's the bad guy in the Exodus story? Pharaoh. Pharaoh. That's how you spell Pharaoh. I got that wrong one time in high school, and my teacher mocked me. It was really embarrassing. Who's the Pharaoh in the New Testament? Satan, right? Satan is the overlord who wants to hold us in slavery. Okay, in the Old Testament, there is a redeemer in the Exodus story. Who's the redeemer in the Exodus story? Moses. Okay, every year, again, I have the same jokes like every year, but it's true. Okay, if you get this one wrong, you cannot enter the Catholic faith. Who's the Redeemer in the New Testament? Mary. No, just kidding. Jesus. Yeah. Right, which is why, right, and, and the New Testament wants to show us that, right? The beginning of Matthew's gospel Jesus, King Herod, tries to kill Jesus, right? And all these little babies. Guess what happened at the beginning of Moses' life? Pharaoh tries to kill all the Hebrew male sons. Same thing that Herod does at the beginning of Jesus' life. Just this past weekend, or, or I'm sorry, it was Monday night, Jesus, after his baptism, he goes into the wilderness and he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. There's only two other people in the Bible who ever did that. Guess who one of them is? Moses, right? There's more and more of this, but Jesus is the new Moses. He's the one who's going to redeem his people. Okay, I know it's getting hard to see because I'm going lower on the board. So there's a redeemer. So there's an escape. How did the Jews escape from Egypt. Okay, there's two answers to this, and that's one of them. Is and we're gonna put that as number two is the Red Sea, right? Moses parts the waters in Exodus 14. But before that, how do they even get to the Red Sea? How do they get out of Egypt? Okay, but yes, that's right. Sacrifice the lamb, but what's that part of? Passover, which is part of the plagues. Okay, we're going to come back to this. Oh, I just love it when we hit this part of class. Do you know how much it's going to suck tonight when class ends and we can't, and we'll be like, okay, next time. I hate that. Okay, um... And the escape in the New Testament, let's work backwards. There's the Red Sea. What's like the Red Sea in the New Testament? 
baptism. And real quick, with your sheets, is this an extra? Oh, it's yours. Let me just borrow it. So look at the bottom. I, there's that bold print. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, St. Paul writing. I want you to know, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Don't look at anything else because it gives away future answers. So Moses, or, uh, St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, he tells us that the Red Sea was a baptism. We're going to come back to that in one second. What corresponds to the, and maybe we should just say Passover here. What corresponds to Passover in the New Testament? Yeah, crucifixion is also the Eucharist, but we'll come back, we'll get there. Okay. Um, do you guys have all that written down? Can I start over and so you can see the next things? Yeah? Okay. Okay, so <clears throat> what happens next is, and this, this is critical. So they come out of the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 14. And where, where are the Jews, let's just say, let's say their goal. Where are the Jews going? Promised land. What's our promised land? Yeah, kingdom of God, heaven. Now, now one point I make, and this anticipates another topic that we're going to hit at some point, God willing, is justification. So, so what I'm doing here, this whole paradigm we're doing about Exodus and the New Testament, it comes from 1 Corinthians 10 on your sheet is the strongest place in the New Testament that just explicitly says that Exodus story is about us. If you want to be a Christian, what it means to be a Christian is to live the Exodus story. It's explicit there. It's implicit in about a hundred different places in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 10. And that's what's on your sheet. Another place, here's an easy example. In Luke chapter 9, when Jesus is transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration, it says that Moses appears to him along with Elijah, and it says they talked with Jesus about his exodus, which he was to accomplish in Jerusalem. There's a new exodus that's going to happen. There's a new way that God's people are going to be freed from their sin and slavery and brought out of that land of slavery into the land of freedom and into redemption. There's a new way that's going to happen. Jesus begins his ministry at the River Jordan, which is where the Jews enter the promised land. It has all these echoes of the Exodus. In Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus is tempted by the devil, 
The three temptations that Jesus undergoes are the exact three temptations that the Jews faced during the Exodus. The exact three. If you want to be a Christian, you have to go through the Exodus. Okay. So they're on their way to the promised land. But here, oh, so here's the point I want to make here is that here's one of the differences between uh, Catholics and non-Catholic Christians, most of them at least, is that most non-Catholic Christians say, if, if you ask Moses, here's how I like to say it. If you ask Moses the day after the Red Sea, you go through the Red Sea, Pharaoh's armies are drowned, and you ask Moses, you say, hey, Moses, and you ask the typical evangelical question, and you say, Moses, saved. How would Moses, how do you think Moses should answer that? You were here last year. What, 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 what should Moses say? Okay. You guys are such, you're, you're, like, you're all a little nervous tonight. You're like, I don't know. What would you say, Father Brian? <laughs> How many say no? How many say yes? The rest of you are cowards. Because right? it is. It's a trick question. Both. If, if Pharaoh's army is chasing after you and they're going to take you back to slavery and you were a slave, and God drowned that army in the waters. Like, heck yeah, he saved me. Do you see those chariots floating at the top of the water? Yes, he saved me. But here's the, here's the nuance. Where are you? Where is Moses the day after the Red Sea? He's in a wilderness where he will spend the next 40 years. And what, in the analogy... A lot of Christians today, what they say is, when you are saved by God, you're in the promised land. But that's not how the story works. That anticipates a future thing. Real quick, baptism, just to tie that up, is that in baptism, St. Paul, remember Romans 6, we started tonight with this, in Romans chapter 6, St. Paul says, do you not know that we who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Why is the Red Sea like baptism? Well, in baptism, sin dies in the water. And in the, Red, in the Exodus story, Egypt is a symbol through the rest of the whole Bible. Egypt is a symbol of sin and slavery. And guess who died in the waters of the Red Sea? The Egyptians. And so in the Exodus story, Sin dies in the waters, and there's new life on the other side. Baptism is a symbol of death. It's not the only symbol. The Red Sea is not the only one. The early church also does the same thing with the flood story of Noah. In Genesis chapter 6, the beginning of the Noah story, right? what happens is the earth is hugely sinful, and there's death of sin through water, but then there's a, there's a boat, which the early Christians universally tell us that boat that Noah had is a prefigurement of the Catholic Church. And so the world drowns, sin is drowned in the waters, there's death of sin, and there's new life on the other side. And that's why baptism is a natural symbol in Scripture 
for, the sal- for, for death and salvation. Okay. So in the way the promised land, how, how, like let's just say length. We already gave this away. But how long are the Jews in the desert? 40 years. What's our 40 years? This is it's a tough one. It's a lifetime. After the Exodus story, through the rest of the Bible, 40 years is a generation in the Bible. And that's the Christian life. The Christian life is God loved you. He saved you out of slavery before you could do anything. He loved you so much he died on a cross for you. He loved you before you could even know who he is. And once you realize how much you've been loved, you're called to walk in what is sometimes feels awfully a heck of a lot like a desert. But you know you're loved and you know you're going somewhere. Okay, how did the Jews survive 40 years in the, in the desert? The manna from heaven, right? Which is Exodus chapter 16. This is pretty easy. What's our manna? It's the Eucharist. In John chapter 6, Jesus says that he gives us the true bread from heaven, which is his flesh and blood. And if you want to live a real Christian life, and there's something so cool here, there's, there's so much that's so cool here. If you, when you live your Christian life, brothers and sisters, if you ever want to remember, like, God, what am I supposed to be doing? You got to go back to the Exodus story. A really cool thing about this is that in Exodus 16, the God waits to give them the manna until they've run out of food from Egypt. He, he will only give them bread from heaven when they've run out of food from Egypt. And what that means for us is that the Eucharist is for those, it's only for those who have left Egypt. So the Catholic, right, and Egypt is a symbol of sin and slavery in the world. And the Catholic Church teaches that if you're in a state of serious sin, you should not receive the Eucharist. God waits until the food of Egypt runs out. And even deeper than that, here's what I would say. A lot of Catholics go to Mass every Sunday. They receive the Eucharist all the time and nothing ever changes. You know why? Because they haven't really left Egypt. The Eucharist is only for those who have left behind the world. They've stopped living for pleasure and power and for themselves. And if you do that, if you leave behind Egypt, the Eucharist will change your life. It will absolutely blow your mind. But if you want to eat from Egypt, you want to be like everybody else, get as rich as you can, be as comfortable as you can, have as much pleasure as you possibly can, the Eucharist will mean nothing to you. You'll never hunger for it. Okay. What am I leaving out here? We're almost there. So on the way to promised land, um, maybe I should just ask this. There is more to this, but we've, we've done most of it. 
when does the manna end in the story of the Exodus? When does the manna stop coming down from heaven? Don't make that's yes, that's correct, but that's not when it, it does. They're not supposed to collect it on Sabbath because they're not supposed to work on Sabbath. That's a different. When does it end altogether? Good. The manna stops when the Jews enter the PL, the Promised Land. How would that correspond to our life as Christians? What's our promised land? The Catholic Church teaches, as an official teaching, that there are no sacraments in heaven. Sacraments right, are the food for our, for our earthly journey. They are the food for those who are walking. They are not the food for those who arrive. Okay, look at your sheets. So let's look at a couple of these quotes. So Origen has been fresh on my mind, so there's a fair amount of him. The figure of the Exodus Egypt can be understood in two ways. For when someone is led from the darkness of error to the light of recognition and changes from earthly converse to a spiritual way of life, he seems to have come out of Egypt into solitude. That is, to the state of life in which by peace and quiet he becomes practiced in the divine laws and imbued with heavenly thoughts. Formed and guided by these things, when he has crossed the Jordan, he hastens to the promised land. By the way, one thing I did leave out here, the law, when God gives the commandments to the Jews, right, it comes, it would have come before this, but it's, it comes in, ex, the law comes in Exodus chapter 20. So God saves the Jews out of Egypt. The, the Passover is Exodus chapter 12. The, the Red Sea is Exodus chapter 14. He saves them first, and then he gives them a law. Which is why we did not start this class with the moral law. Right? Because God saves people first. Right? You, don't have to, you don't have to become a perfect person to be a good Christian. A lot of people think that. Good luck. <laughs> I'm far, 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 far from that. What happens in the Exodus story is that God saves his people, and then because he loves them, and he's shown them that he loves them, then he gives them a law for their good. That's what Christianity is. And you, as, as someone who I hope will become Catholic, if you're not Catholic already, I hope so, that's the Christian story. Parents, give, parents love their children from the moment they know they have a child. 
They love them. And then they give them a law because they love them. And that's what it means to be a Christian. And it's the same thing for us, right? As you're, as you're walking, the most important thing is not if you've lived up to the law. The big question is, do you know how loved you are? And once that happens, when you're walking this, in these 40 years, God's going to teach you that law deeper and deeper as you walk. Okay, we only have a half hour left. Um, just kidding. I know, I, I always say the same things. Let's read one or two more quotes. We'll see if there's questions. This might be a good breaking point. We'll see. Uh, third quote from the top is again, origin. Let's read that one. See if the affairs of the world and the acts of the flesh. The acts of the flesh, what does that mean? The acts of the flesh mean not just like sexuality. Most people think it means that. It does mean that. But it also means like pride. I live for myself. Jealousy. Hatred. Right? Just, just looking out for number one. That's for, for the New Testament, that's the flesh. See, if the affairs of the world and the acts of the flesh are not the house of bondage, which is how Exodus refers to Egypt. Just as on the contrary, to leave worldly matters and to live according to God is the house of freedom. Egypt, therefore, is the house of bondage, but Judea and Jerusalem are the house of freedom. Okay, let's pause. The other questions there are going to be, we might start this tonight, we might not. Let's just do questions first. Yeah. Yep, that's Romans chapter 6. Yep. So Paul sees in the New Testament that ultimately, he's, ultimately Paul says you're going to be a slave in one way or another. But Paul sees slavery, that there's one slavery that is ironic and it sets you free. And so it would be kind of like a marriage. This I know that sounds bad. But in marriage, it's almost like you become a slave because you love. And you, you, you relinquish your freedom because you love. And so Paul starts almost all of his letters and he'll almost all of them, not all of them, but close. The intro of his letters, he says, he starts, he says, Paulos uh, um, doulos Jesu Christu, which usually is translated Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. But that's not what, doulos does not mean servant. The word for servant in the New Testament is diakonos, which is where we get the word deacon. Diakonos means servant. Americans don't like the word slavery because we feel incriminated by it because we enslave people. Paul says, I am a slave of Christ Jesus. But he sees it this irony that to escape the slavery of Pharaoh, you must become a slave of God. But it's ironic because the slavery of love, the slavery of faith, the slavery to God, Right, right, that the slavery of the world says 
you're in command. You do everything you want to do. But at the end of the day, really, you're a slave to your desires. I can't say no to myself. I can't say no to the pressures. And it looks at first, when you become a Christian, like you give up all the things you want to do, and it looks like you become a slave. But the irony is that it actually sets you free. And you find joy and peace, purpose and love and all those things. So it's something like that. Does that make sense? Is that beautiful? I love that. We, I mean, I could do in a whole new class. The book of Philemon is all about this, but yeah, I'm going. Yep. Yeah, is there something in the Old Testament that represents confirmation? So confirmation and baptism are very tied together. Um, Old Testament types of confirmation, that's a little bit harder. Um, the, the biggest one that the, the early Christians will see is Psalm 23. And they're going to see multiple. The, Psalm 23, you guys have all heard. Psalm 23 is, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In green pastures he gives me repose. Beside the quiet waters he leads me. The Old Testament prefigurement of confirmation. Confirmation is about a seal. But let's save that for like a couple classes ahead. But what it means very, very briefly is it's like, you know, how do, how do ranchers know which cattle belong to theirs? If you and I, if we all ranch together and we've got five like cattle together, how do we know which cattle, which cow belongs to who? How do we know? You brand it, right? Part of confirmation is that. And when John talked about the indelible mark last week, Baptism and confirmation, the, the, the New Testament talks about, the Greek word is, it's kind of a funky word, sphragis in Greek. And what it means is that God sets his seal on you, that you belong to him. Um, and that, that's more of the imagery of the New Testament and confirmation. Um, there's others, because the Holy Spirit is so connected with, with confirmation. Um, so like David's anointing, any anointing in the Old Testament is a prefigurement of confirmation. Yeah. Yep. What happens if somebody is baptized and then they really follow the way for the rest of their life? Great. I'm so glad you asked that. So the question is, what if someone's baptized Catholic, but they don't just follow the way? And again, we're anticipating here what... Um, the technical term for this is justification, which is, it doesn't really mean this, but most people think it does. It means how do you get saved? And let's just stick with that. So let's look at your handout. Again, so let's go back to that 1 Corinthians 10, that bold kind of one at the bottom that's bigger print. So I want you to know, brethren, that all our fathers were, un, were, all, were all under the cloud. And all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same supernatural food. What was the supernatural food they ate? The manna. And all drank the same supernatural drink. For they drank from the supernatural rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. And here's your question. Nevertheless, with most of them, 
God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, that was a great story, and we should consign it to history. No, I'm just kidding, right? No, Paul says, now these things, God was not happy with most of them. Look, Paul's saying they had supernatural food. They were baptized. They were loved by God. And you think you're so special because guess what? God loved you and you were saved out of sin and you were baptized and you received supernatural food. Now these things are warnings for us not to desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it was written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to dance. That's a quote from Exodus 32, which is the golden calf. You may have been loved. And, and so Psalm 95 talks all about this. And this is what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 10. He's saying to the, the, the Corinthians, yeah, you've seen amazing things. You were baptized into the death of Jesus Christ. You were given the promise of eternal life when you were baptized. When you come to the table of the Eucharist, you receive the flesh and blood of God himself. But don't think because of that you can live how you want to live. Right? These things that happen to them are warnings to us. So look at verse 8. We must not indulge in immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put the Lord to the test, right? As they did in Exodus 17, which is in Matthew chapter 4, when Satan takes Jesus to the top of the temple. And he says, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will send his angels to guard you, lest you strike your foot upon a stone. And Jesus says to Satan, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Paul's talking about the same thing here. We must not put the Lord to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them um, as a warning, but they were written down for our instruction upon whom the, age of the, the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Now, this isn't the topic tonight, but just pause really quick. A very popular doctrine in a lot of Christian circles today is called once saved, what? Always saved. Does that sound like once saved, always saved? Of course it doesn't. Because the New Testament doesn't teach that. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your strength, but with the temptation will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, here's the really crazy thing. So, this will be a good setup for next week. Next week, we're going to drive this home and I'm going to show you Jesus, the teaching of Jesus Christ about the Eucharist. And again, do not miss next week. This will change your life. Um, but here's a good setup for next week. We have, where the Eucharist was, when did Jesus institute the Eucharist? When did he give it to the church? At the Last Supper. The New Testament 
has five different accounts of the Last Supper. There's five times it's spoken of in the New Testament. In uh, Matthew's Gospel, it's chapter 26. In Mark, it's uh, 15, or is it 14? Let me look really quick. It's uh, chapter 14. Mark 14 and Luke is chapter 22. And John is chapter 13. And then St. Paul treats of it in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. And here's what's so cool about this. All tonight, right, for the second half at least, we've been walking through this Exodus story as a setup for the Eucharist. That's exactly what St. Paul does in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So this next paragraph, Therefore, my beloved, shun the worship of idols. I speak as to sensible men. men. Judge for yourselves what I say. We're going to talk about this next time. The cup of blessing, which is a technical term. It's not just like, hey, let me bless you with this cup. It's a technical term, and we'll talk about that next time. The cup of blessing, which we bless. Is it not? It's important to get that right. Some lectors, sometimes they get up, and they'll read a Mass, and they'll say, the cup of blessing which we bless, it is not a participation. And, and I'm like, you just said the exact opposite of what St. Paul says. <laughs> is it not a participation? The word participation there is, in the Greek, koinonia. Another way to translate participation is communion. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a communion in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a communion in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifice as partners in the altar. What do I imply then? Let's finish this. I, I, we don't need to, but the food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything. No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be partners. The Greek word there is koinonoi, those in communion with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Powerful, powerful stuff. Um, so Paul's treatment of all this is what we did tonight. Is that if you want to know what it means to be a Christian, you have to know the story about the manna. Right? You've got to know that in your time in the wilderness where you're called to be faithful, and if, and if the unfaithful Jews, at the end of that, if you know that story, at the end of the Exodus story, the Jews who are not faithful, how many of the Jews get into the promised land at the end of the Exodus? Two. Two Jews made it in. Their names are Joshua and Caleb. And the rest of that generation 
is denied entrance into God's promised land. But they were baptized in the Red Sea. They received the Eucharist, or the, the manna from heaven. They were led by a pillar of fire, which is faith in the Holy Spirit. That's our pillar of fire, right? They had a great redeemer, Moses. We have all those things. But Paul says in that chapter, if God rejected them for their unfaithfulness, what makes you think that you can be unfaithful in your time in the wilderness? Okay, Warren. Right. I know that sounds really depressing, doesn't it? It's like two. Yeah. No, it's in that generation. So in the generation of Moses, and the generation of Moses, and it really goes back to Numbers chapter 12 and 13, but that's, we're out of time, so I don't want to get too deep into it. But the next generation, all of them make it because they learn how to be faithful. But the generation that rejects God in the wilderness from the generation that rejected God, only Joshua and Caleb. And so Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, that that Exodus story is your story. And we have even greater blessings than the Jews did. And our time in the wilderness and the desert of this life is filled with miraculous blessings from God. But that means that we're called to be faithful. Okay, next week we're going to talk about Last Supper. We're going to talk about why there's five accounts of it in the New Testament. We're going to talk about why would Jesus teach that the bread becomes his body and the wine becomes his blood. Why would he do that? It is, I know I've said it like 10 times tonight, but one last time, it will like blow your mind. Okay. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thanks, everybody. See you next week.